Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I'm speaking to the brilliant Adrian Buller about her book, The Value of a Whale on the Illusions of Green Capitalism. We talk about everything from what green capitalism actually is through to how it is being embedded in international law, ask whether or not um, it is a kind of inherently anti-democratic movement and how uh, it is linked to the problems that we're facing today um, in terms of the cost of living crisis. Um, thank you, as always, to all of our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you do not already support us on Patreon, then please consider doing so. I know times are tough for people, but if you can spare the cash, then please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you can't afford to support us and you'd like to support the show in another way, please just uh, consider sharing this episode or another episode on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Facebook twitter or instagram now a quick word from our sponsor before this excellent episode with adrian buller the left book club is a not-for-profit subscription book club it's an affordable way to get a carefully chosen list of inspiring books that explore radical alternatives to the current crises of capitalism every book is printed in a unique edition and you can choose between six or twelve books a year plus author events and discounts from publishers including pluto press and tribune magazine I personally receive books from the Left Book Club and I find it a really great way to expand my reading beyond the kind of range of books that I would ordinarily choose myself. And a World to Win listeners can get their first month subscription for free by going to leftbookclub.com slash member and using the code WINFREE. That's WINFREE, all in caps, at checkout. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I am here today with the brilliant Adrian Buller to talk about her book, The Value of a Whale on the Illusions of Green Capitalism. Hello, Adrian. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I want to start by asking you the question that is on everyone's lips, the question that you have put to the world. What is the value of a whale? And who (laughs) thought it was a good idea to pose this question in the first place? (laughs) Yeah, great question. Um, So I guess the actual value of a whale remains an open question. But if you are the International Monetary Fund, then to you, a whale might be worth about 2 million US dollars based on its contribution to ecotourism and its role in sequestering carbon and a couple of other factors. Um, And a couple of researchers there a year or so ago now, maybe closer to, God, I've lost track of time in the pandemic, published an evaluation of what they consider the price of of your average kind of whale in order to try to make the case for conserving them. Now, the book talks a lot about basically green capitalism, your idea of green capitalism and the economic, political and legal foundations of this increasingly important framework. So can you tell us a bit about what green capitalism is and what the, inverted commas, solutions to climate breakdown and various other ecological catastrophes that it has generously provided to us? Yeah, so I mean, I guess there are probably a lot of ways that people are defining green capitalism. It's kind of a nebulous term, but the the parts of it that I kind of try to focus on in the way I define it in the book is basically a strategy on the part of capital for confronting what is an unprecedented kind of threat to profitability and to financial stability and to returns and all the kinds of things that capital cares about. So I kind of identify 
specifically kind of focusing on sort of Anglo-American capitalism, two sort of major strategies that come out of this overarching framework, one of which is basically solutions that try to address climate and ecological crisis in a way that does as little as possible to disrupt existing kind of structures of power, systems of power, distributions of wealth, control, etc. So doing everything that you can to kind of resolve this crisis without a sort of systemic transformation of the type that might be demanded by, you know, climate movement activists. And the second is, you know, confronted with what will inevitably be a sort of changing economy, particularly when it comes to sort of the energy systems that we use and rely on, um, which have historically been a huge source of profit and kind of the basis for a lot of global capitalism, you know, rooted in the fossil fuel industry um, and sort of associated industries. You know, how can we create new sort of domains for profit making and for investment and for accumulation um, in the transition to a decarbonized economy? So where a lot of climate activist types are talking about the need to maybe decommodify lots of things in this transition, green capitalism is really trying to assert the opposite. And it kind of follows the interests of a group of actors that I'm sure we'll talk about and unpack who kind of are are leading the way on this, which is, you know, private companies, private investors, all of whom have a genuine interest in decarbonization and in sort of stabilizing the climate. You know, they can't do business in a completely destabilized future. However, it's sort of a project for shaping very strongly what our response is to that crisis, determining the contours of sort of a future energy system, financial system and society, um, and making sure that we do so in a way that uh, addresses their particular interests, um, rather than sort of a justice based framework. So one of the things that um, we as kind of, you know, eco-socialists and climate activists hear quite a lot is this idea that green capitalism is impossible, that it's completely impossible to kind of, in inverted commas, save the planet or save human life on the planet whilst maintaining capitalism as a social system. Is that true? And so if green capitalism is possible, then is it desirable? Yeah, so uh, you actually stole exactly the framework that I was going to use there. Thank you, uh, Sorry. Eric Owen White, <laughs> for the desirable, viability and achievable framework. Um, <laughs> so I think, um, you know, there is a big question there about, you know, can capitalism exist within a world in which or a future in which there is some degree of climatic stabilization? I think probably, and maybe that is an unpopular line to take. However, that's a future in which, you know, you've probably sacrificed huge swathes of the global population as sacrifice zones. You know, there's probably huge um, kind of suffering, widespread ruptures, widespread nature loss, and it's probably not permanently tenable. But when we're looking at, you know, the 2030, 2040, 2050, even the kind of 2100 kind of time horizon that we talk about beyond which for some reason in the climate community, no years seem to exist. 2100 is, I guess, the end game for all of us. I think probably there are ways in which it could adapt in a kind of horrifically sort of violent and extractive and brutal kind of way. But if you are someone who, like I think most people in the world, would describe themselves, which is, you know, that's not a future that I would like to see, then no, I don't think that green capitalism is is viable. I don't think there can be a capitalism that is actually green in any way. And a big part of that is because I think it, it is reliant on sort of 
a fundamental misrepresentation of what the problem of the climate and ecological crises are. And this is sort of the focus of the book, which is the idea that climate change, that biodiversity collapse, all these things are uh, sort of characteristic market failures. So the problem is that we haven't arrived at an appropriate sort of price for what's called the externalities of something like carbon emissions. So that's something that is a sort of byproduct of economic activity that might not be sort of paid for by the person creating it. And so to resolve that, all we need to do is internalize the cost of those externalities by putting a price on them. So basically, if you put a price on carbon, then you bring that back into the market. Or if you put a price on biodiversity loss in some way, you can bring that back into the market and then it can address what was a market failure and now kind of act efficiently to arrive at sort of an optimal solution for resolving it. And that is the kind of overarching framework of green capitalism. It's there in its kind of totemic solutions like carbon pricing or like sustainable kind of private investing. I use sustainable there in scare quotes um, and a whole host of other kind of very mainstream prominent policy approaches to these crises. And none of those I think are well suited to what is a much more kind of phenomenally complex and potentially catastrophic risk. You know, they treat them as something that should be gradually addressed um, without any degree of planning left to the invisible hand of the market. And there's no way I think that that will deliver a future that is sort of climatically and environmentally stable, but also critically one that is sort of just and is a world that's not only like inhabitable, but one that's like worth living in, (laughs) which is, I think, something that we also kind of uh, tend to forget about a lot. And so the question that I ask a lot in terms of, you know, is green capitalism possible and desirable is to set aside, you know, a lot of the purpose of this book is actually to talk to people, ideally, who are advocates of sort of a green capitalist future, you know, people who genuinely care about addressing these crises, and to just present all the evidence that I could find that's available to the very basic question, which is, you know, are green capitalist solutions working, which if you advocate them should probably be like a very basic checkpoint that you you can tick the box of. And, you know, for the most part, the answer is no, or very little or doing so in a way that is undermining more systemic climate action or creating kind of new injustices elsewhere. So for all those reasons, I would say uh, a green capitalism rather is uh, neither really viable nor nor desirable we've <laughs> nicked my next question which was going to be why is understanding climate breakdown as a market failure and inherently limited perspective <laughs> so i'm going to reframe the question slightly to ask you a little bit about um uh, you know how you would understand this from a different you know a heterodox perspective because you talk a lot about the limitations of kind of neoclassical and mainstream economic frameworks i had not long ago john bellamy foster on the show and we did a really interesting interview about his work on um you know, Marxist understanding, basically, of the relationship between capital and nature. And his whole argument is that capital has treated nature as a free gift up to now. And the capacity to do that is slowly being eroded as the natural environment becomes degraded. And that the big problem that we have here is the tension between the use value of nature, which is basically the foundation of everything, of all life, and its exchange value. And, you know, with the demise of the ability of capital to treat nature as a free gift, you're going to start seeing all kinds of 
you know, not just like ecological crises, but also shocks in the realm of, of production. And in that sense, you can kind of link what's going on right now with cost of living crisis and inflation with this ecological crisis of capitalism. So, yeah, I mean, what do you think about that, basically? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of John William Foster's work, and I think you've really nailed it there. Which is that, you know, the the critical issue with the way that sort of mainstream economics has treated the environment or the climate thus far is, you know, that the economy is somehow this kind of separate and independent unit in which, you know, nature features as an input, if at all, you know, as a free gift, if you want to use his framing. And, you know, that is as much as neoclassical economics likes to describe itself in the language of sort of physics and the natural sciences, it's indicative of this sort of complete neglect of sort of ecological um, and climatic kind of scientific reality that I think is really, really embedded in mainstream economic approaches. So I guess I'm answering your question less from sort of a theoretical approach and more from, you know, how does mainstream economics actually engage with physical reality? With the answer being very poorly, and that's because it's sort of incapable of, you know, by design, it's incapable of understanding and sort of creating relationships between things without the price mechanism. And when it comes to sort of the extreme complexity and sort of interconnectedness and embeddedness of ecosystems, biodiversity, the climate, and the way that all of these things relate to each other, there really is no means for sort of disaggregating those into constituent parts that can be priced or sort of abstracting individual elements, whether that's carbon or whether that's, you know, a whale or anything else sort of out of the ecosystems or the other systems in which they're embedded. And so that creates sort of like a fundamental challenge for any system that is reliant on the price mechanism to operate, which is obviously the sort of core basis of a market-based approach to resolving these challenges. I mean, you've hit on a really interesting point there. And I thought this a lot when I was reading the book, which is these questions around complexity and the kind of interdependence of all of these different variables that you're analyzing. Because obviously, you know, one of the big problems with the mathematical models that are used to tell us about the, you know, in inverted commas, economic impact of climate breakdown are very linear. Um, they can't account for feedback loops, interactions, like kind of non-linear interactions between different variables. Is the answer, therefore, that we need to just kind of develop better models? Economists need to take complexity seriously and start doing kind of evolutionary economics or using insights from kind of physics and other sciences that have to deal with complexity. Is there a kind of technical solution to this problem? I mean, I think even before we answer whether that's possible is whether that would even be kind of necessary. So I, mm. I definitely don't think that the answer that we need is sort of better economic modeling, because frankly, it's just something, at least the sort of mainstream economic models that we have are just, you know, not designed to resolve ecological questions. They're designed to say, you know, is this optimal in some kind of abstracted cost-benefit sense. So the work of William Nordhaus is a really good example. I talk about him a lot in the book. Um, he's, you know, part of me feels bad for picking on him because I think he gets picked on a lot, but then part of me is like, nope, nope, deserves He's it. a good villain, um, I think. He, and it's important to have a villain in a book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he's an interesting villain, right? Because he, I think in some ways, I, I like to believe he is well-meaning. However, he's so embedded in this idea of, an optimal kind of 
distribution of resources and costs and benefits that he totally ignores science. So for example, you know, he has this kind of model about what would be optimal from the perspective of global GDP in terms of global warming. And he arrives at this idea that based on economic modeling, that's, you know, three degrees Celsius, which scientists say would be, and even, you know, mainstream publications like The Economist accept is likely sort of a catastrophic future. And so for me, it's not that we need to be sort of taking complexity seriously or, you know, developing better economic models. It's just that we should be putting aside mainstream economic models and just engaging with what we already know to be true and with the sort of overwhelming scientific evidence that we already have about, you know, what are safe. And again, I'll use, you know, scare quotes there, safe climate limits, because what is considered safe is very different for different people all around the world depending where you live, but also, you know, on your class status, on your gender. But, you know, we have an overwhelming amount of evidence about exactly where we need to be. And the task now is to make very clear, sort of very bold decisions involving, you know, quite a degree of planning to sort of address that ecological and climatic reality rather than saying, okay, this problem is coming down the line. How can we, how can we resolve this in a way that is most efficient from sort of a resources and cost basis? You know, we are well past the point at which we have the luxury of some kind of imagined efficient response to this, which again is, is kind of the core focus of, of mainstream economic modeling. And it's a really, I think the one thing about, the kind of complexity of the climate crisis is quite interesting is that the argument that sort of free market advocates make against planning or against sort of government action on the climate crisis tends to be based on the fact that, you know, we have very poor or partial information and therefore, you know, we can't plan because we'll, we'll get things wrong and, you know, the risk of creating a negative outcome is somehow worse. And so that's an argument that's kind of leveraged against the idea and has always been leveraged against the idea of our capacity to plan. However, when it comes to, you know, the science of the climate crisis, we know exactly what the risks are, even if there's some, you know, constantly evolving science and things might turn out to be worse than we expected, as tends to be the case. You know, the best thing we can do is take um, what's called sort of a precautionary principle or precautionary approach um, in the context of, you know, a non-trivial risk of catastrophe to do absolutely everything that we can to address it. So, you know, I'm okay, frankly, with an inefficient response to climate crisis and with some kind of wasted effort um, if we're just throwing absolutely everything that we have at this crisis. And that's sort of anathema to a market-based approach. Well, you've nicked my next question again. <laughs> Which I was gonna, Sorry. No, it's good. I was going to ask you about the problems of focusing on efficiency. But I mean, let's just talk about some of these models and some of the just like very strange variables that they use or measures that metrics that they use to try and analyze this problem that are just you know by any measure very political and yet are presented as really objective so tell us about I've got three things here that I want you to explain to people and why they matter so the discount rate the SCC and the VSL Okay. Okay. I can do that. Let me just... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just going to like collect thoughts briefly before I launch into it so I don't ramble too much. Um, okay. So the discount rate is kind of at the heart of, 
a challenge that economics has tried to resolve for a long time, which is how do we understand relationships between sort of people now and sort of people living in the economy in the future to make decisions that, you know, investment decisions, for example, that might have a value to people many generations into the future, but, you know, we are investing that money now. And so trying to understand those trade-offs. And there's this kind of received wisdom that having money now is worth more than having money in the future. And so we have all these kinds of debates over by just how much we should be discounting the lives or the value of things to people in the future versus now. And that comes into a really interesting sort of variable that's used in a lot of policy decisions, which is the social cost of carbon or the SCC. And what it tries to do is to think about the impact of every kind of additional unit of carbon emitted on people. And it uses that to kind of design policies, thinking about people here, but also into the future. And basically, it is a problem insofar as it can only kind of integrate things that we are able to put a price on. And, you know, that's to return to a theme of this conversation, which is that, you know, it can include things like additional costs on healthcare systems in the future or you know, various other quantities like that. But it can't really take into account the impact of massive wildfires on, you know, human well-being in an abstract sense or on loss of things that basically we can't put a price on. Um, and then I can't remember what your third one was. <laughs> um, the third one was the VSL, a really dark one. Oh, God. Yeah. So the VSL is particularly grim. Um, and again, related, which is the value of a statistical life. Now, it isn't quite as grim as it sounds. And so far as like, people haven't tried to say that like a single human life is worth X amount. It comes out of sort of a Cold War history where basically they were trying to evaluate whether certain military operations were worth undertaking based on projected kind of loss of life. And what it does is kind of represent, again, the kind of um, marginal benefit of saving a life based on how much like society is willing to pay to do so. So it's used in all sorts of things like seatbelt use or sort of traffic laws, for example, where it's like, oh, the economic costs of, you know, imposing maximum traffic speeds in terms of, you know, reducing our ability to move goods around um, needs to be weighed up against, you know, the potential value of a lost life. And so it's used in kind of those policy decisions, which is quite grim. And particularly it's used in climate decisions about, you know, how do we weigh up, you know, the economic loss of, you know, getting rid of the fossil fuel industry versus the loss of, you know, lives, which is inevitable if we don't do that, um, expressed in this kind of uh, a quantity. Um, and so it has this kind of role in global policy decisions around the climate crisis that is very quiet um, and quite dark and is there. Um, and, you know, we don't really have any kind of modeling that doesn't include these kinds of concepts because we can only understand things insofar as we can put a price on them. So to move beyond these kind of a little bit more technical questions and actually ask about the kind of the nature of technocracy and economism and what they mean politically. Um, a question I came away from the book with is, is green capitalism inherently anti-democratic? Yeah. So, I mean, very good question. I would say absolutely yes. And there's quite a few elements to that. Um, and some of it is, you know, 
based on work that you do a lot on, which is kind of the emergence of an increasingly strong kind of state capitalism in which the state serves the interest of capital. But I think one of the things that I focus on in the book and which I'll touch on here is the idea that all of these kinds of decisions around how we address what is a fundamentally political and systemic and overwhelming problem that is rooted in questions of justice and inequality. The best way to resolve that, according to the green capitalist framework, is through the market, which means sort of through the authority of private actors engaged in exchange. And to me, that is sort of fundamentally undemocratic. If you are someone who's a free market advocate, you would argue the opposite and say that, you know, markets are the ultimate arbiters of democracy. I think most of us would agree that's not the case, given that everyone is coming to the table with, you know, wildly different um, power in that exchange. And one of the biggest ways through which this is advancing is through the leadership of private investors in the advance of green capitalism, and particularly groups within Wall Street and the sort of institutional investment and asset management space, um, who've proven kind of particularly adept at advocating to shape government policy, whether it's in the UK or the EU or the US, in a way that serves their interests, which is namely reducing the risks of the investments they make, sort of optimizing them to the portfolios that they want to have, as well as sort of creating, opening up new areas for private investors in these spaces. So it's kind of the advance of a phenomenon that an academic called Daniela Gabor um, describes as the Wall Street consensus which is basically an approach to decarbonization and to the climate crisis that is based on um, not using sort of direct public investment or capacity to respond to this, but to sort of crowd in private investors to deliver on these outcomes, particularly within the context of um, the global south. So, you know, opening up new domains for private investors to own bonds to infrastructural projects in the global south. But it's also present in, in the US and the UK and Europe as well. Um, and I think that is a kind of fundamentally undemocratic exercise insofar as it very comfortably says, you know, let's, instead of having sort of democratically elected and accountable bodies decide, you know, through necessary political contestation, you know, how should we be resolving this fundamentally political issue? Let's just hand this over to the sort of wisdom of the market and a hugely kind of concentrated group of market actors to decide, you know, where they want to to allocate their investments. And yeah, I think that's fundamentally undemocratic. It's unaccountable. It's often quite opaque and it creates, you know, real risks for hugely negative outcomes, particularly for actors in, in the global South. And a big part of that comes from, you know, the nature of borrowing for lower income countries, which is often now on sort of international markets with sort of private investors um, scooping up sovereign debt. And the implications of that being that, you know, they're kind of beholden to those investors in terms of um, what they do and acute crises that will increasingly kind of punctuate the advance of the climate crisis, make them very, very vulnerable to massive outflows of capitals, to sort of investors getting spooked and withdrawing it. And again, that kind of fundamentally undermines the sovereignty of, of nations all around the world who are kind of reliant on the whims of uh, international investors. So a big part of the kind of last few chapters of the book is about basically the financialization of nature. 
So can you explain what is meant by the financialization of nature, how it links to this idea of the Wall Street consensus and where it's showing up? So specific examples of where this is happening. This is an interesting kind of developing frontier of the Wall Street consensus, which is, you know, after a long time focusing just on climate, um, thankfully, people have started to think a lot about um, biodiversity loss and ecological crisis as well. Um, But with that has come the advance of investor interest in finding ways, just like they did with carbon and carbon pricing and carbon markets, to find a way to invest in this space and to capitalize on and to gain from this space. And so there are two sort of core frameworks for the kind of commodification and subsequent financialization of nature, which means sort of packaging it up into tradable commodities and then generally creating sort of financial instruments and assets based on those commodities. Um, And these are natural capital, which is exactly what it sounds like. So that might be a stock of, you know, forest or some kind of other asset, uh, to use that in quotes, that is currently sort of given by nature as a free gift. And the other, again, given freely are ecosystem services. And so rather than a stock, this is something like the benefits of, you know, disease resistance or clean air and drinking water and biodiversity that an ecosystem, again, offers to us freely. And so a lot of groups have sort of set out uh, to find ways to arrive at prices for these things so that now they can be priced into the market and then people can invest in them and they can be put in sustainable finance products and it's all great. Um, And problem is, I mean, there are several problems. um, And I'll just start with one. And then if we want, we can unpack others. But, you know, again, fundamentally, one thing that's been a challenge here is that ecologically, it makes very, very little sense to try and disaggregate any of these things into their constituent elements, particularly if what we're trying to do is arrive at a price based on what is most valuable to actors in the economy. Because what you very quickly end up with are kind of absurd situations in which you just value particular elements of an ecosystem, you might try to protect those without kind of recognizing that the ability for those to exist is fundamentally reliant on a complex network of things that, you know, we maybe didn't value. And you can end up in ludicrous situations where, you know, ecosystems that are physically located closer to cities and to people are worth more insofar as they have a stronger relationship to economic activity. But from sort of a global ecological perspective, that's obviously a nonsense. Um, But that's kind of the nature of what this project is trying to do. And it's kind of cropping up everywhere. I think there were, the last estimate that I saw was from 2018, but there were, you know, $40 billion of trades in um, biodiversity offsets in 2018. And that's basically saying, you know, we'll destroy a bit of an ecosystem here, but somewhere else, you know, you need to offset it by conserving or restoring an ecosystem of, you know, equal or greater value. Um, And so this isn't actually all that fringe anymore. Um, It's sort of a key framework of how a lot of governments and industries are thinking about um, resolving this issue. So what are some of the ways in which international organizations like, for example, the IMF and the World Bank are seeking to encode this idea of the Wall Street consensus? Um, So bringing private investors into any solution to climate breakdown and creating this kind of agenda of stakeholder capitalism more generally. How is all that being encoded in international law? 
Um, so what are some examples of, let's say, kind of treaties or new legal frameworks that we're seeing at the global level, whether in finance um, or in kind of corporate governance or whatever, that kind of embed these practices in the way that capitalism is functioning? Yeah. So what's interesting is that a lot of the kind of legal architecture for the Wall Street consensus to advance already kind of exists because we already have sort of a global system of finance and exchange that does everything in its power to enable kind of the free mobility of of capital around the world. What's changed, I think, is that, you know, this has been recognized as a space on the part of private investors to be a space in which governments and other institutions might kind of backstop private capital. And there are lots of examples of that happening. The European Green Deal is a really good example um, in which uh, rather than use the sort of actual sort of fiscal power of um, the European Union, uh, the Green Deal suggests crowding in, in quotes, private investors by basically undertaking loan guarantees um, and other kinds of sort of financial backstopping to make sure that investors experience, you know, as little risk as possible while being able to sort of fully privatize the gains. And then when it comes to the more global level, this is kind of an agenda that is being advocated by the likes of, you know, Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, also the Bank of Canada, my, you know, home central bank, and also groups like the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, the IMF, all of whom have programs um, sort of dedicated to the need to crowd in private finance and sort of encouraging uh, governments in the global south to undertake loan guarantees and to open up formerly public sectors to private investment and like all those kinds of, of instruments. So it's kind of being articulated at several levels at once. And, you know, the fingerprints of it are evident even in things like Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. I haven't reviewed all the final clauses of it. it just came out last night, late last night in the UK time. But it includes, or at least the former drafts of it, included several provisions of the sense where, you know, rather than direct public investment, we can sort of optimize the role of crowding in private investors while using the stake as, as a backstop for their profits. And the kind of origins of this at the global level, I guess, you can see in the kind of structural adjustment program of the IMF and World Bank, where, you know, if you're extending loans, then you are obligating uh, recipient countries to kind of open up their economies to foreign capital and to reduce uh, capital controls and to create sort of new investment opportunities for for often foreign private actors. Um, and now it's just kind of being articulated in a particular space around um, the climate and biodiversity. And that's sort of being pushed by private investors like, you know, the Black Rocks and Vanguards of the US who obviously have an acute interest in finding new opportunities for investment at all times. <laughs> this isn't massively touched on in the book, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it because mm. it's kind of one area in which we often hear about finance and climate breakdown being linked. But what is the carbon bubble? And is it something that we should be worried about? <laughs> yeah, so the carbon bubble is the idea, I mean, it builds on the classical idea of any investment bubble, which is, you know, mass speculation that drives a huge rise in asset prices that eventually bursts when people realize that those prices are are based on little foundations. So you can look at kind of the tech bubble or, you know, the housing price crash of 2008. And 
The carbon bubble says the same thing about assets that are currently on stock exchanges and other financial exchanges around the world that are based around primarily fossil fuels, but broadly carbon intensive assets, which um, advocates of the carbon bubble idea suggest will cease to be anywhere near their current valuations within the kind of near future because of, you know, actual climatic reality changing things or more likely, you know, regulatory regimes coming in, which basically make the fossil fuel reserves on which, you know, fossil fuel companies share prices are based unburnable and unexploitable. And I think that is probably a really helpful framework in some respects, because it does kind of convince people who are in the kind of financial sphere to maybe shift their investments. It's also one that I think is unhelpful in other ways, insofar as it's kind of reliant on an imagined uh, regulatory future in which those things cease to be unburnable and sort of regulatory risk then becomes articulated as the greatest threat to the value of those assets, which I think is responded to in an incredibly effective and sort of robust campaign of lobbying and trying to influence policy to ensure that there isn't this kind of organic bubble burst of fossil fuel prices. Um, and instead, you know, we can ensure that we backstop the asset prices and returns of investors and protect the interests of these fossil fuel companies to ensure that they don't sort of suffer the consequences of uh, decarbonization. So I think it is a bit of a double edged sword, but quite, I guess, an interesting concept. It kind of came through a lot during the pandemic. And in response, we saw this big shift, this alleged big shift towards green assets, you know, um, people in finance, particularly actually uh, the asset management industry saying we need to take climate breakdown seriously. We need to kind of be custodians and guardians of the whole economy. Larry Fink writing that letter to all of Mm -hmm. the execs that he was invested, these companies he was invested in saying, we need to start taking climate breakdown seriously. And yet now that, um, you know, not coincidentally, of course, this was uh, around the time the oil prices dropped dramatically. And yet now we're seeing the profits of the big fossil fuel companies just absolutely skyrocket. That has completely gone. And the big asset managers are now saying, oh, it's not our responsibility to support shareholder resolutions on climate breakdown. Was this always, you know, this alleged big shift towards um, green capitalism led by asset management? Was it always just a ploy? Or is actually there some portfolio shifting taking place? And, you know, is it enough? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a really good question. And um, it's one that I wrestle with a lot. And it involves, I guess, some kind of speculation on on the mindset of Larry Fink. But I'm going to tell you the way I think that he thinks about this problem. Um, Larry Fink being the CEO of BlackRock. Um, Larry, if you're listening, uh, you feel free to come on the show and uh, tell us how you're really thinking. (laughs) Larry, I love you. Um, but uh, so I think um, what's interesting is that I wrote the book, obviously, before Ukraine crisis. So during this kind of like peak moment of kind of green and sustainable branding and triumphalism among finance and the asset management industry in particular, Ukraine has definitely changed that, changed the calculus around the nature of sort of oil and gas in the global economy in a very significant way. But I think the mindset of groups like BlackRock still applies insofar as I think BlackRock does have, as I've said before, you know, they have a genuine interest in addressing the climate crisis in a particular way. You know, they are 
what's called a universal investor insofar as they are exposed to every kind of asset in every geography and in every in- industry that you could imagine. Um, and that makes them, you know, uniquely and systemically exposed to the risks of the climate crisis. And so they do have, you know, skin in the game, as it were, for resolving this and, you know, minimizing the risks to them of the climate crisis, of decarbonization and of all the kind of processes related to that. But the key is the idea there that, you know, they're not necessarily concerned with the risk of creating climate crisis itself. They are concerned with the financial risk, uh, the risk to their returns, to the value of the assets that they manage, because that's their kind of entire uh, raison d'etre. That's, you know, how they operate as a business. And so for BlackRock, particularly because um, for those not aware who are listening, um, it's far and away, you know, the largest asset management company in the world. They manage about $10 trillion in assets. As I said, you know, they're universally exposed and they're hugely politically powerful as a result of that. You know, there are several BlackRock alum in the Biden administration. Um, they've advised the EU on sustainable finance. You know, they were given the task of allocating the Federal Reserve's uh, corporate bond purchase program in response to COVID. You know, even Bloomberg has joked that they're kind of the fourth branch of the state in the U.S. Um, And there's good reason for that. And, you know, they have this enormous influence over policy. And I think that can be seen in the way that they think about the climate crisis. So in the era in which they were kind of trying to champion sustainability and really branding themselves in that way, you know, that was a self-interested branding exercise. That was something incredibly salient for consumers and for institutional investors like pension funds all over the world who were maybe responding to young pension holders or, you know, university endowments responding to divestment campaigns. All of that, I think, is something they could do as a branding exercise and maybe actually take some steps to improve the sustainability of their portfolio. But they're much less concerned, in my view, with actually adapting what they're invested in, in part because they have to be effectively exposed to everything as a universal investor. And they're much more interested in securing a policy regime and a legislative regime and particularly a monetary policy regime that kind of ensures that no matter what happens in this process of decarbonization, one, they have you know new areas to invest in, ideally Wall Street consensus style, backstopped by the state. And two, that you know asset prices are protected. So the carbon bubble is a great question there. You know, rather than allowing a massive carbon bubble to burst, they'd be com- very, very sort of interested in a sort of smooth deflation of the value of those assets. Um, you know, they're quite interested in asset prices staying high across the board and are very supportive of monetary policy interventions that allow that to happen. And so I don't think their pivot to a kind of anti-woke perspective, if you will, is actually kind of in any way incongruous with their perspective before. They're just responding to a new set of conditions almost in the same way, which is to say that, you know, what we care about is our asset prices and we engage particularly with policymakers in a way that allows those to remain stable and ideally to to rise over time. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So there's lots of conspiracy theories at the moment flying around about this idea of the Great Reset. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of shrouded in all sorts of mystery. If you look it up online, it you know can be anything from like anti-vaxxers to lefties to hippies or whatever, like various different subgroups online who believe that this idea of the Great Reset that the World Economic Forum is, is pushing is a kind of plan to 
uh, I don't know, anything from like a communist conspiracy through to a like elite plan to, I don't know, take over more of the world than they already have. What actually is the Great Reset? And what's the problem with the, the thinking that actually underpins what the Great Reset is? And why is it so, why has it lent itself so much to all these conspiracy theories? I see, I love the Great Reset conspiracy theories. I find them fascinating. I have an uncle who constantly emails me Great Reset conspiracy theory documents. I was at a panel recently that I was giving where uh, Piers Corbin came and handed me a flyer he'd written about the Great Reset. It has captured imaginations in an incredibly compelling way. And what I find so interesting about it is that I think, as you pointed out, there is a critique that aligns somehow both with those on the left and those on the kind of ultra-reactionary, climate-denying, vaccine, anti-vax, kind of COVID-denying right, I want to say, although they're probably on their own fringe altogether. And it's based on this idea of kind of global control and conspiracy and trying to use COVID and the climate crisis to, you know, drastically reorganize society. And in many ways, that is kind of absurd because, you know, the World Economic Forum doesn't really have anything but soft power. (laughs) But on the other hand, I think there, you know, in every conspiracy theory, there is usually, you know, a grain of truth. And what that is, is that, you know, this is basically just rebranded kind of stakeholder capitalism. So this idea that is increasingly prevalent in the circles of people like Mark Carney or like Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, other kind of prominent leaders at international institutions, this idea that um, capitalism is going to do best as we go forward um, by investing or, you know, producing in a way that aligns with social and environmental good. And that's so, you know, those two things aren't fundamentally at odds. And in fact, you know, the best way to do well in terms of profitability is to do good in the world. And so to do that, it sort of, you know, proposes Lots of things that could frankly fall under the umbrella of, you know, the Wall Street consensus. So again, finding ways to enable businesses to invest sustainably in scare quotes. And so that's really all it is, is it's not actually that fundamentally interesting or ambitious of a program. It effectively kind of advocates an imagined version of capitalism in which, you know, businesses are the forces that are driving social and environmental progress. Um, And what's sinister about that is, again, to return to this question we had earlier about sort of democracy and where power lies in what will be, you know, a necessarily radical transformation of, you know, our energy systems and the way we organize our societies. Um, And so it kind of sidesteps questions around inequality and injustice and just turns the challenges of sort of global well-being and sustainability into something that can be addressed by, you know, the profit motive and smart, well-meaning kind of corporate actors supported with sort of gentle handholding by the capacities of states. Finally, one last question. I want to kind of bring this back to people's kind of lived experience at the moment, because the big thing that people are experiencing, aside from kind of record temperatures and generalised terror in the face Mm. of ecological breakdown, is a massive cost of living crisis, driven at least in part by high energy prices that are creating huge super profits for fossil fuel companies. Where is the overlap between the cost of living crisis and the kind of green capitalist agenda? How are they helping to reinforce one another? Green capitalism is fundamentally reliant on this idea of, you know, the the rationality of markets and of private actors within those markets. And, you know, on the fact that 
because the incentives are there. And if we get the incentives right, we can, you know, deliver a future in which corporations and investors are actually kind of giving us what we need in terms of infrastructure. And when it comes to something like escalating gas prices around the world, you know, it's clear from the lack of investment in renewable infrastructure over um, the past several decades, even though, you know, the risks of climate crisis and geopolitical tensions, you know, are not things that were unknown to us um, over those decades, you know, shows that relying, I think, on on the profit motive and on those kinds of incentives to deliver a sustainable and particularly a just future is kind of a nonsensical position to take. And that's because, you know, there are so many um, you know, the market doesn't work in the way that uh, free market advocates, you know, imagine it does. Um, we don't live in a world of, you know, perfectly rational actors with perfect information who are going to deliver these optimal outcomes. You know, we are instead living in a highly sort of concentrated and unequal economy in which whatever is most profitable in the near term, often backstopped by state subsidies, what's going to be invested in, and that can have, you know, catastrophic outcomes for most people. Um, and that's something that, you know, green capitalism or market-based approaches to this crisis, you know, is fundamentally kind of disinterested in as an approach. Adrian, thank you so much for joining me on this fantastic episode of A World to Win. You can buy Adrian's book, The Value of a Whale. Uh, actually, can you buy it now? You can. It's out. You can. You can. Yes. Yeah. So um, with Manchester Books, right? Manchester Press. Manchester University Press. Yeah. Great. Available in all good bookstores. Thank <laughs> you.